Uh, good morning to you all. It is good to be with you this morning. I want to just begin by thanking those of you who jumped in at the last minute last week. Matt and I both went down. We were both sick. And uh, did my mic just cut out for a second there? No? It did. Okay. Keep an eye on that. Uh, thank you for those of you who jumped in at the last minute, uh, especially Brad Owens. I don't know if he's here right now, but thank you, Brad. You did a great job uh, last week, and he filled in on short notice. We're just really grateful for all those things. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to turn our attention back to a series that we began two weeks ago, looking at the questions that Jesus asked. And uh, as I was digging into this, <clears throat> as I was digging into this, I came across the work of a woman named Mary Schaller. Mary Schaller. Uh, you may have heard of her, maybe not. Uh, she, she's retired now, but uh, up until a few years ago, she was the head of a ministry called Q Place. And, uh, and what they do is they, they, uh, they work to try to help Christians uh, learn to have conversations of faith with people who don't believe what we believe. And, uh, and you know, she found, she wrote a whole Bible study on, uh, on these questions that Jesus asked. And uh, she found that these questions serve as, as just a great launching point for conversation uh, over things that really matter because good questions actually expose our hearts in some way. This is what she said. She said, questions make us think. Uh, as a church culture, we often have a lot to tell people. But good questions, just as Jesus asked, create dialogue. Good questions create dialogue. And the story that we're about to look at, we're actually not looking at one question, but several questions that are asked. And each one, it's, a, it's really a dialogue of questions. And, uh, and each one exposes a bit of the heart of the person who's asking the question. And so as, we, as I read through this as a short story, uh, I want you to l- just take note of each question that's asked and then think about what does it say about the hopes, the concerns, the desires of the person that's asking the question. What does it say about the heart of Jesus? And what does it say about our heart too? Let's look together. This is Mark chapter 4. I'll read verses 35 through 41. Hear the word of the Lord. On that day, when evening had come, he, Jesus, said to them, his disciples, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. 
Oh, Father, I I pray that you would be with us this morning as you already have been. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be at work in our midst, that you would help us, teach us, instruct our hearts in the ways you would have, and that you would help me, your servant, to speak words of love and truth to your people, uh, to love them and honor you. Please help me. Help me, Holy Spirit, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've never heard of him, I want to introduce you to a man named Ira Sankey. Ira Sankey was a missionary. He was an evangelist, missionary. Uh, He was also a singer and a hymn writer in the late 1800s, into the early 1900s. He was a a soldier in the Union Army in the Civil War, and then this is what he did. He he started work as as a missionary evangelist doing work in the Americas. And in Scotland and England, kind of just, and by 1875, he had become a kind of internationally known, uh, recognizable person by that point. Uh, But this story comes on Christmas Eve, the evening of Christmas Eve uh, in 1875. He was actually on a steamboat heading up the Delaware River. And uh, when someone came to him and recognized him. Now, there's an article written about this, and it describes this evening on the river as one of those perfect nights where it's just clear sky, you know, you see the stars, just not too cold out there, just beautiful. And people are out on the deck when somebody approaches Ira Sankey and says, will you please sing for us? And Ira thought to himself um, <clears throat> that he should probably sing a Christmas hymn for them, and, uh, but he said something caught in the spirit, and he decided that he would sing, Savior, Like a Shepherd, Lead Us. And so he sings, and the, the article says that there was a deep stillness as his baritone floated across the quiet river that Christmas Eve. It just sounds lovely. And so he sang, and people thanked him. And then somebody stepped out of the shadows and came up to him and said, did you fight in the war? And Iris Sankey said, yes. And he, and he said, did you fight uh, for the Union Army? And Iris Sankey said, yes. And then the man said, this is not the first time I've heard you sing this song. I saw you one night standing your post on a picket line. And I was a part of the Confederate Army, and I was going to shoot you when you started singing at night. And I heard you sing this song, the lyric, We are thine, do thou befriend us, be the guardian of our way. And then he said, My arm dropped involuntarily to my side, and I couldn't take the shot. Now, imagine you were on the deck of that boat when that man said that to Ira Sankey. What do you think the look on his face might have been in that moment? I mean, think about what he must have felt. As he considers the scope of his life, every, everything that he has lived since then, to think that the Lord was at work preserving him in that moment, I mean, there's just something amazing when you consider, like what we see in the story, that, that God has sovereign power to protect his people in profound ways. 
I also find it somewhat unsettling to think that if God has the power to protect us at all times and in any way he so desires, then why are there still storms in my life? And what in the world is Jesus doing as he's leading his people across a lake, asleep in a boat, when a powerful storm arises, why, what, is he doing, what is he trying to teach his disciples? And what is he trying to teach us? I'm going to name two things that he does here in this passage. He begins by exposing our fears. And then what he does is he invites us to trust him. He calls us to trust. He exposes our fears and he calls us to trust First, he exposes our fears. I want to talk about this in two ways. Talk about the fear that we see in the disciples in two ways. Uh, First, it's cause. Every every fear we have has a a root cause to it. And so first, the cause, and secondly, their response. Fear almost always demands a response from us. So cause and response. Uh, First, the cause. So Mark calls this a great windstorm. That's the word he uses so you get the impression that it's just very, very windy. Uh, and then the, in the, the same story, in Matthew's account of the same story, he actually uses the Greek word seismos, which is the word we would translate earthquake. So you, get, you just get the impression that this is a, a major, major weather event at work here. It's very windy. The world just might feel like it's coming apart in those moments. Now, and this is still true today, the Sea of Galilee is actually known as a place where storms like this can, can just surface, uh, ran- it can feel like at random and suddenly. So if you went out there and you looked at the Sea of Galilee, you might know, I've never, I've never been, I'm not speaking as somebody who has actually been to the sea, maybe one day, but if you went out there or we all went out there together, you would see that the Sea of Galilee feels like it's in a bit of a bowl and that's because it lies uh, a little more than 600 feet below sea level. And this is important because uh, not too far away, there's Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon rises to a little over 9,000 feet above sea level. So in a short distance, you have a span of about 10,000 feet of elevation change. And what that, what that creates is uh, cold air coming down the mountain, meeting the warm air on the sea, and creating the clashing of winds that we would see in something like this. And so the point that I'm making here is that the storm that they're in here isn't like some rare freak occurrence that happens on the Sea of Galilee. It's actually something that happens pretty common. Remember that many of these disciples... Uh, or some of them at least, were former professional fishermen before Jesus called them to be fishers of men, right? And so they would be really familiar with what's going on. And so one of the things I want you to see is that one of the causes of their fear is simply because they were out in the world doing normal things when the storm shows up. It's not because of something that they've done right or something they've done wrong. In fact, whose idea was it to get on the lake that night? If you look at verse 35, whose idea was it? It was Jesus' idea. In fact, there's something that this story is telling us. 
And it's, it's not simply that, uh, that the storms in our life are, are here because we have done something right or because we have done something wrong. There are times, this is teaching us, when God allows these storms in our life to arrive, to teach us something. And if this story is about, which I think it is, if this story is about Jesus' call to trust him, even during some of the most difficult times in our lives, it is telling us that they were in the storm simply because... And there's little in the disciples' response to this storm that I can't identify with. I mean, everything about this resonates profoundly with me. It doesn't say much about what they were actually, the activity of the disciples while they were in the, while they were in the boat and this storm kind of comes on top of them. But you can imagine what that was like. I mean, they knew what to do with the boat that was in trouble. They were probably bailing water. The, 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 the passage says that water is coming in on the sides of the boat. So they're probably trying to get water back out of the boat as fast as it was coming in. There's another story of Jesus with his disciples in another storm where the text says that the, the disciples were rowing hard against the wind. So they're, 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 they're hyperactive. They're, they're fighting against this thing that they were afraid of, doing the best we can. And that's what fear sometimes leads us to. It can lead us into a kind of hyperactive response in order to fight against the thing that scares us the most. But what do we actually see in this passage that they do do? They go down and they see Jesus sleeping in the boat and they wake him up. Now, this is really interesting. This is the only place in all the Gospels where you actually see Jesus sleeping. The only place in all the Gospels where where it records Jesus sleeping is actually in the middle of a storm. And they go down, they wake him up, and when they wake him up, what do they say? They say, teacher, do you not care? Do you not care that we are perishing? That sounds hard, doesn't it? It sounds like something I would say, but it does sound hard. And it sounds hard because because of how accusatory it sounds. Because they seem certain of two things. One, that they are dying. They say, we are perishing. And secondly, they, they seem to, to believe that Jesus just does not care about him. Many of you have heard the name Joni Erickson Tata. She's a well-known Christian author, speaker, artist, um, she, uh, she's perhaps most well-known for how she has spoken about and lived out her faith after suffering a tragic accident when she was a teenager. Uh, and she, she was somebody who grew up active and healthy. She loved tennis. She loved horseback riding, all the things. Like, she loved to, to do things. When at 17 years old, she dove into some water in the Chesapeake Bay and didn't know the depth, and she fractured her back. And she became paralyzed. For the rest of her life, she was a quadriplegic. And uh, years later, she said that 
she spent some time, she spent some time really struggling with the idea that God had turned her attention, his attention away from her. That he, he must have been attending to some greater problem on the other side of the world and he just had his back turned. Because she didn't think she must matter to him for this kind of thing to happen. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? It sounds like something I might say and many others have said at some point in their lives. One of my favorite pastors said this. He said, it's not just the fear of the storm that prompts the question. It's the fear of Jesus' indifference. Have you ever felt that before? Can you feel the weight that's behind a question like that? It might help you to know that you would not be the first to pray prayers like that. It might help you to know that the Bible is actually full of prayers, just like that. You start in the Psalms and you probably wouldn't make it through one without finding a question like that aimed at God. It seems like God uh, isn't offended by these prayers, but even in some way invites them. Jesus himself prayed a prayer like that. Why have you forsaken me? And when he said that, he was quoting Psalm 22. This is a familiar prayer on the lips of God's people. It might also help you to know how Jesus responds, to look and see what Jesus does with this kind of imploring, accusatory question is leveled at him. He calls us to trust. First, what's the first thing he does, though? For their accusation, what he does is he responds to their great need. The first thing he does is he stands up. And he does it in a really interesting way. He simply speaks. He speaks to the wind and the waves. And many have made the point that for for him to do such a remarkable thing, he does it in like the most unruffed, and he simply says, peace, be still. He talks to the wind and the waves, like you might talk to like your dog when he's bad or something. Like, like he, he, he just simply speaks peace. He doesn't make everybody stand, like stand, like watch this. He's not drawing attention to it. He just, like there's no magic wand. There's no special code word or anything that he uses. He just stands up and he says, peace, peace be still. The power of creation, this powerful thing in its midst, this thing that, remember what the sea meant to those people. It meant this place of chaos and inexorable power. Jesus simply with a word speaks peace and it settles down. Some of you are familiar, I know we've got our kids in here uh, this morning, some of you are familiar with the, the Jesus Storybook Bible. I can't recommend it enough. It's one like if anybody's having a baby or something, and you're wondering what to get them, get them that. And if they have three or four, that's fine. Like you can't have enough of these. But Sally Lloyd Jones wrote this, and she um, uh, she wrote about this story. And this is what she, I love what she said about this. She said that it was the same voice that made them in the very beginning. They listened to Jesus. 
and they did what he said. Mark is also giving us a sense of the conviction. When Jesus stands, he doesn't rebuke the disciples, but what does he rebuke? He rebukes the wind and the waves. And that word rebuke is used several other times uh, in Mark chapter 1 and Mark chapter 3. It's both times he uses it um, to describe Jesus rebuking evil spirits that are tormenting people that he loves. And later he will use it uh, to describe what Jesus did as he rebukes a crowd that's hostile toward people he loves. The addiction that Jesus has to protect and care for his people at all times. But we all know it's one thing to, it's something else entirely to actually manifest it. And the story tells us that the wind ceased and there was great calm. That great calm could also be translated dead calm. Uh, When I think about that, I think about like the reflecting pool in front of the Washington Monument in Washington, D.C. The idea is that the sea somehow became even more calm than it was before the storm came. In fact, the sea somehow came to look like Jesus himself. I mean, the storm is upon the boat, and what's Jesus doing? He's asleep. He's like the picture of peace in the middle of chaos. And when he speaks peace, he gives peace. And one person said that the, the, the sea came to match the repose of its master. It came to look like him itself. And so that's the result of peace. And then he asked them a question. Notice that he did, not acute, he did not respond to their accusations. He simply goes right to their heart. They asked him a question that's them a question that reveals his concerns. And he said this. He said, why are you so afraid? That's the question, isn't it? Why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? That's the question. Now listen, there is a way to hear that, and it can feel harsh. It can feel feel harsh, and it can feel condescending. Are you really telling me that I don't have something legitimate in my life to be afraid of? Look at this storm. I think actually what's going on here is Jesus is offering an invitation To to trust in him, he is making a connection between the, the peace that we can enjoy and the trust. You know, listen, there are a lot of different philosophies to, that are available to us for contending with things that we're afraid of. You, you, can, you can go anywhere. You can go shopping and find all kinds of philosophies and strategies available to you for how to, some will teach us that we can deal effectively with our fears by simply learning to understand them better. And we do that. Like sometimes it's just really about attaining more knowledge. If I can learn more, be less afraid of it. And that, and that there's some merit to that. that. You know, there is some merit to that. But will that make me fearless? Uh, others will say that our fears are something that we need to just learn to control. Like, if I could just manage the way I respond to things I'm afraid of better, then, uh, then, uh, then that, will, uh, that will help. 
others will say that, um, that we just need to stop wanting things so much. Like that, that's a philosophy that's available. Like you, you won't suffer as much if you just stop wanting things. Uh, Seneca, the famous Stoic, once said, we suffer more in imagination than in reality. And I don't know, being on a boat, I don't think that's very helpful at all, right? Now, Jesus' offer, his invitation of peace, sounds actually nothing like any of those things. Because what does he do? He, he, uh, he is manifests peace... And then he calls them to trust them. And all of these things come alongside what we see in this story as a deep and abiding commitment that he has to each of these people that he loves. Because where is Jesus? Jesus is still in the boat. Jesus, I can't overstate the boat. He could have gone anywhere he wanted. He could have escaped danger. He could have run away. But Jesus is still in the boat with his disciples. And this, and to enjoy his peace is so profound because it never comes separated from his commitment to be with you at all times and in every way. And listen, this is a timeless commitment of God. That he made to his people. I will never leave you. Nor forsake you. On the night before Jesus was betrayed. He was with his disciples. And boy they had endured some storms together already by that time. But he knew better than anybody. That another storm was on, a, on the horizon. That the very next day he knew. He knew about his own suffering. That he was. Uh, going to have to endure, and he knew about the suffering that his disciples were going to have to endure. And so what did he do? He said, he said these things. He said, I'm going to go away for a little while. And it's like he knew that they would be confused when he heard him say that. He said, I'm going to be away from you for a while, but I am sending you the Holy Spirit to be your helper with you forever. Do you feel that commitment that he's making? I will be with you forever. We sang this earlier. Come Holy Ghost, where you go, I will be with you, is the commitment that he makes. And then he says, this Holy Spirit will dwell within you forever. He will teach you things, and he will help you remember the things that I've said to you. That's, that's what Jesus says. I'm going away, but this is coming for you. And then he said this. So he makes the commitment to be with them forever. And then he said this. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I, not as the world gives do I give. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Do you see how he's, he's tying all these things together? This enduring commitment of Jesus for his people and joined with this call to trust him and joined with the peace that he gives to his people. What are you so afraid of? Have you still no faith? You know what I love about this little story? It ends with a question. It's not, it doesn't get all wrapped up nice and tidy. It is not binary. (laughs) 
He just gives this to his disciples and he leaves it with them to, with them to wrestle with. And he asks them this question and then, and then the passage says they, they were filled with great fear. Like they, there's, a, um, <clears throat> there's a point Mark is saying, he's like, then they became even more afraid. <laughs> like they were afraid during the storm, but now they have great fear. They're, like they're terrified. And they ask the question, the, the question that we should all ask. Who then is this? Who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. And that's the question I want to give to you this morning. Who is this? To you and your fear, who is this? If you're in the middle of a storm in your life, who, who is this? In the midst of great difficulty or in the midst of great peace, who is this? that even the wind and the waves obey him. I got a few minutes here. I want to give you another story. Um, <clears throat> over the past week, the, uh, <laughs> I wanted to learn a little bit about what the lives of professional fishermen are like because, uh, you know, these disciples in the middle of a storm, I don't know. I just wanted to look at it. And uh, if you are ever interested, it's fascinating, but if you are ever interested in learning about this, the, the, the deadliest catch on the Discovery Channel is actually a good place to start. Some of you might have seen this, but whoa boy, like that is a world that's unlike any I've ever even heard of. I mean, it, the injury, they say that the injury rate for being a fisherman is, is near 100%. Like, you, won't, you will not do that job for long some way. In fact, people die um, fish in, in fishing boats every year. And what they do is they follow fishing boats in one of the most dangerous parts of the world is in the Bering Sea off the coast of Alaska between Alaska and Russia. And they follow these crab fishermen who, like, they've got these cranes with a thousand-pound crab pots, which are cages. They drop on the floor. They pick them back up. The whole thing just looks like chaos. Imagine on a rolling deck. It's just dangerous anyway with water coming over the side. One guy they hired just right off the dock to come out there with him, and he quit three days in. He came off the dock, and he said, I saw a wave as tall as a building. And it just freaked him out, this picture of power. The story that really got me was the story of one fishing boat was kind of near another one, which doesn't always happen. And the captain in the this one fishing boat looked at the other boat and saw a man that was climbing around on the edge of the stack of pots and he watched as a wave just came up and scraped him like he, like he scraped him off the boat and into the water and if you fall into this water you, uh, you really only have minutes if you're not wearing a survival suit you really only have minutes your body enters hypothermia almost immediately your body enters hypothermia almost immediately, and, uh, and it's, you really have maybe around 10 minutes before your body just completely shuts down, and, uh, and, but, but I'm out of the water before anything bad happens. It was just amazing, and, uh, and this survivor was interviewed later, and he said this. He said, the Bering Sea is this place that's always trying to kill you if you give it the chance. But here's the thing that got up close experience for just how terribly powerful this world is. That man was on a fishing boat within days.
he went right back out there. He went right back. He knew out there, and they asked him, why are you doing this? And he said, it's just what I do. It's just what we do. This is who we are. Now listen, we're not all professional fishermen. I know that. At least I don't think so. Uh, But I do know that when we wake up in the morning and we head out the door, danger. There, There are ways that our lives can feel stormy. And the question is, how are we going to respond? How does the inexorable commitment and power of Jesus given to you on your behalf shape how you will respond in the middle and maybe you don't know maybe you're still wrestling with the truth of that and I would just simply suggest that you would start by asking this question who then is this that even the wind and the waves obey him let me pray oh father I pray that you would be with us in this that you would help us that your guiding protection would be with us and that you would help us to trust. Give us your deep love and help us to trust it. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.